Amen. Thank you. Revelation chapter number two tonight. Revelation chapter number two. Revelation chapter number two, and we will be in verses eight through eleven. Revelation two, verses eight through eleven. Now, the statement I'm about to say is probably unpopular with modern American Christianity, but this is the truth, that a call to follow Jesus has always been a call to be willing to endure suffering. That if you look back in the Gospels, when Jesus preached to the multitudes, you've heard our pastor and Pastor Tyler say often that a lot of times when the crowds began to get big, Jesus preached about commitment about being willing to endure. And Jesus said this in Matthew 16, If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And a lot of people want to take that verse and say, you know, the cross is a trial that you bear. But really what Jesus is saying there is that if you're going to be my disciple, life is no longer about you. It's about identifying with me even so much so that you face the same death that I'm going to face, and that is the death upon the cross, a martyr's death. That's literally what Jesus meant there. It was a call to follow him, which was also a call to endure suffering. And it's very clear when you see the next verse, which is this, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And if you know much about Christian history, you understand that throughout the centuries, a call to Jesus has always been a call to suffering. And we can read stories about first century Christians and on that uh, dared to follow Jesus and dared to claim him as their Lord. And because they did, they suffered for their faith. We can read about a man named Polycarp. Now, Now, kids, I didn't say Magikarp the Pokemon. Polycarp. He was a first century martyr. He was a follower of John the Apostle. And this is just one story of a martyr's death. Um, Obviously, he was persecuted for his faith. And they came to this house where he was praying and fasting and seeking the Lord. And they burned him to death. And they didn't think that was quite enough. So they began to stab him to finish the job. And Pastor even talked about in our Liberty program how many people throughout the centuries who would identify with Christ, they would be thrown into a pit with wild beasts or burned at the stake. And we look at Revelation chapter number 2, and we see that Jesus is writing a letter to the suffering church. We see Christians in the church at Smyrna who, unlike anything we've experienced in 2019 in liberal Kansas, were truly put on trial for their faith and were facing some very intense persecution because they dared claim Jesus Christ as their Lord. And here's what can be our tendency when we read Revelation chapter number 2, and even as I began to study it, we can look at a passage like this, and we can begin to wonder, well, hold on a second, what do I even have in common with these people? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not worried about um, being arrested tomorrow because I attended Fellowship Baptist Church today. Anyone else worried about that? None of us are, right? 
Are any wives in here worried that because your husband is a deacon or a, in the leadership here at the church that his life may be put to an end because he's a godly man who stands for the truth? No. No one here is worried about that. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we going to learn from a passage that's about a church that is being persecuted for their faith? And while we may not have that in common with the church at Smyrna, Here's what we all have in common, or many of us have in common with this church in Revelation chapter number two, and I think many of you can identify with this. There are a lot of people in this auditorium tonight who are suffering and need some encouragement. Can anyone testify that maybe they're facing something and they need some encouragement tonight? And so let me, let me just say this, that while you may not be facing persecution for your faith, and while you may not understand what it's like to be fearful of the repercussions of being a disciple of Jesus tonight, that if you are hurting tonight, and if something has gone on in your life that you didn't expect, that if you're going through a messy divorce, or you're facing a child custody battle, or you have some financial issues in your life, and you have no idea how you're going to get through them, or you're facing some marital issues, or you're facing some circumstances that cause you great pain and great affliction, I can assure you tonight that while you may not be suffering for your faith, Jesus has written this very letter to you. And that the same encouragement that Jesus wanted to give the church at Smyrna he wants to give to some hurting people at Fellowship Baptist Church. And so tonight, if you're taking notes or if you want to put these in your phone, I want to give you just three reminders for a season of suffering. And they come straight out of these four verses. And here's number one. I want to remind you from this passage that Jesus knows. Look at verses number eight and nine with me. He opens up the letter to the church in Smyrna by saying this, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a minute. I want you to look at verse number 9. He tells this church, I know thy works. I know thy works. Now look up here for a second. Jesus actually says that exact same phrase in all of the seven letters he wrote in Revelation 2 and 3. But here's the significance of what he's saying here to the church at Smyrna. Because when he said, I know thy works, to the church at Ephesus, earlier on in chapter number 2, many of you might remember that he also said, you've left your first love. I know thy works, but you have a love that you have left, you have abandoned your prior love for me. He said the same thing to the churches at Pergamos and Thyatira. He said, I know thy works. But then he also went on to talk about how these, those two churches were tolerating false doctrine. He said, I know thy works to the church at Sardis, but he also said, you are a dead church. He said, I know thy works to the church at Laodicea, but what did he say, church? I know that thou art neither hot nor what? He says, you're lukewarm, and I'll spew thee out of thy mouth. But yet when Jesus wrote to the church at Smyrna, he just said, I know thy works. And you know what that tells me tonight? That here was a church that even though they were enduring some suffering and enduring some persecution, that they were serving the Lord with their entire heart. 
that they loved him as much as they possibly could, as much as was humanly possible. They were doing their very best to faithfully serve God in a, in a society that was opposed to them and was opposed to Christianity. Here was a group of people that were not impressive on the outside, but when Jesus looked down into their life, he said, I know thy works, and I know you're doing the very best you can to serve me. He said, I know thy works. And then look at verse number nine. He says, I know thy tribulation. That word tribulation literally means a pressure or a squeezing. Ironically, it actually is similar to the word that we get the city Smyrna from, which is from the word myrrh, which is something that is crushed into a fine powder. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, I look down from the portals of heaven, and I understand that you as a church are facing some pressure. Here was this church, and they had Jewish people that were opposing them that we'll talk about in a few minutes. And then on one side of them, they had pagan people that were persecuting them. And then on the other side, they had the Roman government that had stripped away all of their religious liberties. And here's a church that was doing everything they could for Christ, yet they were being squeezed. They were being pressured. They were facing tribulation. He says, I know thy tribulation. And he says, I know thy poverty but thou art rich. Now I think maybe in America, we need to understand that poverty, when it came to the first century church, didn't mean that you needed government assistance. When you were poor, you didn't eat. There was no government assistance, because their government hated them anyway. These people were dirt poor. In fact, I would imagine that some of them looked maybe a little emaciated because they hadn't had meals in a couple days. They were skinny. They were frail. And you read about in the, the church in the book of Acts because they, were, they would, had all things in common. So you get the idea that these people were so poor that they had to share money and share meals because they didn't have enough to pay for themselves. So hopefully a richer brother or sister in the congregation would help them out because they didn't even have enough money to pay for their own meals. And you understand that this church probably, a lot of these people came from poor classes where it's not like America, where there's an opportunity to move your way up the socioeconomic ladder. There's not promotions and raises. No, no, no. When you're a Christian, you're not the one getting the raise. You're not the one getting the promotion. And a lot of these people came from those poor backgrounds. And then on top of that, uh, as you study out what happened in history, probably a lot of them lost their property because these Jewish people and these pagan people banded together and formed mobs and destroyed their property. And so here are these people whose houses had been um, attacked and whose businesses probably had windows broken in and now they couldn't afford to pay for it. These are poor people. And Jesus says, listen, I know thy poverty. But then he also says in verse number nine, I know the blasphemy that you face. Look at verse number nine. In the second part, he says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Evidently, there were some Jews in Smyrna, which was, had a lot of Jews in the population there, that went out of their way to speak out against the Christians at the church of Smyrna. And, and Jesus calls it blasphemy, which literally meant they were slandering these people. Uh, you get the idea that every chance that the Jewish people had to report the Christians to the Roman government, they would. 
Oh, I heard he didn't pay his taxes. And so they'd report him. Oh, I heard they were assembling and they're not supposed to worship their God. And so they'd report him. You remember our missionary from China where they had to move buildings because someone had reported them? That's the same type of thing that was going on for this church. Every turn they took, there was someone there who wanted to see them doing something wrong and was going to report it to the government. I think some small town Kansas people can understand. When there's a group after you that wants to slander you, they can do some real damage to your reputation. Uh, Don't you think that maybe some of these business owners started noticing that some people never shopped from them anymore? Like, man, I haven't, man, one of my biggest customers, I haven't seen him in weeks. They come to find out as they go out in public places, this guy's avoiding them. They come to find out, well, he heard this from this person. And that happened over and over and over and over again. And I don't know if you'd agree with me tonight, but when we face trials, and when we face suffering, and when we feel pain in our lives, would you agree tonight that our tendency is to look around and see all of the circumstances that aren't going our way and to wonder, God, do you even see what I'm going through? Do you even know what I'm facing? We feel lonely. And can I assure you tonight, church, that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through? Hey, listen, there may not be people in this church who understand all that you're going through. They may not know what it's like to wake up and feel the pain you do when you wake up. They may not know what it's like to take the medication that you have to take. They may not know what it's like to have to go to the doctor's appointments or get the treatments that you have to get. They may not know what it's like to have to deal with the custody issues that you're dealing with. But my friend, I can assure you that while the people at Fellowship Baptist Church don't know what you're going through, we have a loving God in heaven who looks down and he sees exactly what you're going through because he cares about you. He looks down and he doesn't miss a single act of service you give to him. He looks down and he sees that you're serving him as best as you can. But it seems like life circumstances are coming against you in a way that you don't even deserve. God looks down and he sees and he knows and he cares. And I can't help but look back at Exodus chapter number 3 and remember the verse. When God's people were enslaved to the Egyptians... Where God told Moses, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry by the reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I love that. God sees, he hears, and he knows. And I can assure you, when a good loving brother or sister in Christ may as may have forgotten to pray about you because that diagnosis was a long time ago, I can tell you what, Jesus hasn't forgotten about your situation. I mean, you know how it is. Some of you have long-term conditions and, and people try to do their best to keep up, but they just, it's not as fresh to them as it is to you because they don't feel what you feel every day. They don't know the long-term pain associated with what you've faced. But when everyone else forgets, Church, please remember, Jesus has not forgotten you. He still looks down and he knows. And when you pray to him every day, he's not worn out by it. He's not like, man, would they stop talking to me about this? No, he's checking in on you. He sees what you're going through. He feels what you're going through. He's heard your cries and he knows your sorrows.
But the difference between Exodus 3 and Revelation 2 is that while in Exodus, God told Moses he would deliver them out of the situation they were in, the difference is in Revelation 2, Jesus did not deliver them from the situation they were facing. Instead, here's what Jesus did. He decided to equip them to move through that situation. Instead of delivering them out of their trouble, here's what Jesus did. He gave them some reminders to help them through their suffering. And so Jesus reminds them, number one, that he knows. But here's number two. Here's what Jesus reminds them. Fear not. Fear not. Look at verse number 10. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. You know, I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus knew about their persecution and he was pretty angry about it. I mean, he called these people who were ethnically his people of the synagogue of Satan. I mean, I'm a plain-minded guy, but I think God's not okay with what they're doing, right? He's not okay with it. But yet, just because God wasn't okay with the situation they were facing, it doesn't mean he was going to remove it. And he says, fear not. Fear not. The word fear comes from a Greek word that might sound a little familiar to us when we hear it. It comes from the Greek word phobeomai. Phobeomai. Anyone here have a phobia? I remember when I was first married to Shelby. Uh, this is still today. In fact, this afternoon I had to kill a spider. <laughs> She's actually gotten better. We, we got married, and I remember I'd come home from my job, and there would be in the middle of our living room a Tupperware container upside down. I'm like, why is there a Tupperware container in the middle of our living room? Like, we didn't have small children. You know, it's not like Shelby was on the floor playing with, no, it was on top of a spider that she found hours earlier. And it's sitting under this Tupperware container. Why? Because she had a phobia. She had a fear of spiders. It didn't help that she got bit by one later. Our staff cleaned up the auditorium and, and changed it over to, you know, normal auditorium decoration after Liberty. And there's a reason that none of the staff guys saw Pastor Tyler on a scaffolding or on a ladder. He has a phobeomai. Right? You would say that, right? Yeah. And I wasn't on a scaffolding either, so... Right? What is a phobia? It's something that we fear so much that we avoid it at all costs. We build up a wall between us and this thing that we're scared of. And here's what Jesus is speaking to this church. He's saying, I know that the situation you're facing is intense. In fact, it's about to get more intense. But let me tell you something. Don't fear the things which you are about to suffer. He says, did you notice that in verse number 10? Fear, what's the next word, church? None. There was no room. He didn't even give them an out. He said, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And then Jesus begins, I, I, sometimes I wonder, like, why does he even give them all this detail? Surely this didn't help. But he says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Now look at the, the rest of verse 10. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Here's what Jesus is saying. Um, some of you that are in the church reading this letter it's not going to be long before you're in a prison cell because Satan himself will work through these people to get you into prison. And I also think we should understand that prison was not a form of punishment. Prison was just a waiting place before you got killed. You didn't go to prison for 10 years. That's not how it worked in their day. You went to prison while they waited to get something ready so they could kill you. 
And, and so he says, but Satan will cast some of you into prison. Now look at the next verse, or next parts, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying this, he's saying, you're going to face, the, the heat is going to turn up. Things are not going to get easier. In fact, they're going to get worse. But let me tell you, it's only going to be 10 days. And I don't know if that's literal, but he's basically saying this. You're going to face some worse circumstances, but I can tell you right now, it is a limited period of time. It won't last forever. And can I just encourage all of us tonight that no matter what we're facing, even if it's a lifelong struggle, that in the measure of eternity, what you're facing is only temporary. That Jesus has put a time limit on it, even if it lasts until our death. When you look at the span of eternity, it doesn't matter what you're facing today. It's just going to be like 10 days. It's limited. It's defined. And he says, fear none of those things. Would you agree that it's our natural tendency to fear what is going to happen to us? Man, I, I'll be honest, I look at the sufferings of some folks in our church who are going through things, and I identify with the tendency that we would have to fear. I mean, how can we not fear when we risk losing a loved one to an addiction? How can we not fear when we get a diagnosis or we get test results that are scary? How can we not fear when our finances are all messed up and we don't know how we're going to pay things off? How can we not fear if we're worried that we're going to be lonely and face some intense loneliness? Are you with me tonight, church? But I want you to think about this with me. That I think the reason we struggle so much with fear is because fear happens when we realize we've lost control. Think about that. We begin to fear when we realize we've lost control. We feel like we have control of our money and then it's like, oh no, something happened that I can't control and I don't know how I'm gonna make this happen and so we begin to fear because we don't feel like we have control anymore. We don't feel like we have control because there's nothing we can do about our health, right? There's just some things that come upon us and we can't do anything about it. It doesn't even matter if we get the best doctor. They can't do anything about it. We, haven't, we don't have any control. Something happens in our family life and, and we're dealing with someone we're married to who has their own independent will and they can choose whether or not they're going to honor God in a situation. And, and so our marriage begins to suffer and there's fear because we don't have control. I can't, I can't force them to choose something different. I can't force that child to come back to church and get things right with God, but I'm worried about them, and I'm struggling, and I'm fearing what's going to happen in their future. We fear when we lose control. But church, can I encourage you tonight not to fear? And, and a lot of people would say, well, how can I not fear? And, and let me tell you this, that our fear ends when our trust in God begins. If you're fearing something right now, you know what that is? That's a symptom that you haven't given that over to God yet. I trust you're thinking with me about this, but I'm being real. I'm trying to be as close as to what the Bible's saying here, that when you fear what is going to happen to you, that is only a symptom that you have yet to surrender that to God's sovereignty. That you have not said, God, I fully trust you with this. Because what is fear? It's our way of trying to make something happen. Well, if I worry about it, it'll get better. How's that work out, right? And let me encourage you tonight to not fear 
but to trust God with what you're facing. Trust God with your future. Trust God with your finances. Trust God with the hurt that you're facing that nobody else understands. Trust God with the safety of a loved one, my friend. All of our fear, it can be rooted down to this, that we haven't yet surrendered that to God's control. And here's what Jesus is saying to the church here. You know why they shouldn't be fearing? Because we were never supposed to be in control in the first place. We were never supposed to be in control in the first place. God was supposed to be in control the entire time. But not only has suffer, does suffering tempt us to be fearful, here's the next thing, suffering tempts us to be unfaithful to God. And so what does Jesus tell the church? He says, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Look at verse number 10 again. He talks about them being cast into the prison and having tribulation 10 days, and then he says this, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches. And here's the same idea in the word overcometh. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. I think we could all agree tonight that if anyone had a reason to quit serving God, it was this church right here. Unlike a lot of the afflictions and the trials we face, if the minute they gave up on God, their suffering would end. Are you following me? The persecution would stop if they just said, well, I'm, not, I'm done with this Christianity stuff. They'd get their customers back. They'd be, they would be released from prison. The sentence would be dropped. All they had to do was pledge allegiance to Caesar rather than Jesus. If any church had a reason to quit, it was this church because the minute that they said, I'm done serving Christ, all of the charges against them, all of the suffering they were facing would be dropped. But here's what Jesus reveals to this church. Look at verse number 10. He reveals to them that the very things they were facing were a tool of Satan to test their faith. He says that you're going to be cast in the prison that ye may be tried. Here's what he's saying. It's even like the book of Job. That Satan is doing these things against you because he wants you to renounce your faith. He wants to put the pressure on you. He wants the pressure to be so hot and so intense that it gets too much for you that you quit on God. And church, can I encourage you tonight, don't quit on God, because quitting on God will never solve your problems. I mean, if you think about it just objectively, there's not, quitting on God is never going to solve your hurts. I mean, none of us here are facing persecution even like they did where it would, but it's not like, God's, it's not like something's going to disappear overnight just because you quit on God. We ought to stay faithful. And I, I think about some people in our church who've stayed faithful. Who've been faithful to God. We had, had Miss Eula over at our house a, a couple weeks or months ago. And I remember she told us about some of the things she's gone through. And, and some of the pains and the tragedies she's faced. She's lost her husband and several family members. Hey, listen, I'm glad for some folks like Eula Kittle who've been faithful to God over the years. And we've talked about Miss Libby last Sunday night, I believe it was, when she sang. And even though she probably can't make her way up to the platform like she used to be, we put a, a thing down there and she sings from the floor. She's been faithful. I'm thankful to look at other people in our church and we could name a lot of names of some of our church members who've been here for years. Miss Jerry who's been here twice as long as I've been alive, right? Who've been faithful to God, who stuck with this stuff, who haven't given up on God even though they face some more intense things than probably a lot of us ever have. 
They've been faithful. And we're not going to have all of them come up here and testify, but I bet if we got all of them up here, they'd probably all say something like this. You know, I couldn't quite give up on the Lord because he never gave up on me. Think about that. How silly is it for us to want to give up on God when he never gave up on us? You know, we might skip verse number 8, but there's some significance into how Jesus started his letter. He said it's from the first and the last. Do you know what that means? Pastor Tyler even talked about this morning. He's talking about his faithfulness and character. That Jesus has always been, and he will always be, but yet he's been the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the first and the last, and he has not changed. He also says he was dead and is alive. That talks about how Jesus, even though he faced the most intense type of persecution, he hung upon a cross, yet Jesus endured that for the same people he wrote to, and he was faithful to death, but he was resurrected by the power of God. And it paints this picture of a faithful savior who writes to some suffering people and he says, you better stay faithful because I was faithful to you. I was faithful on the cross. I was faithful with my life. I was dead and I was alive and I did that all for you so you have no right to give up on me. Stay faithful. seems overwhelming sometimes I think when we look at what Christ calls us to do in our suffering because I think I, I think we're all on the same page here that it's not natural to fear not it's unnatural to say I'm going to trust God with this rather than fear it's unnatural to stay faithful when it seems like that following God has brought problems into our life it seems that way so how do we do that I want you to see the reward that Jesus promises these believers. He says it twice in this short letter. He says at the end of verse number 10, he says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now look at the end of verse 11. He says, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. You know how we stay faithful to God? You know, we, we, we have a perspective like Jesus does on our trials, that it's just like 10 days, that it's a defined, limited amount of time, when we realize that this life is not the end, that he has promised us an eternity that goes on forever and ever and ever once we die. That even death cannot overcome us because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and in return he has granted us eternal life. That I don't have to fear what I face in this life because even death can't conquer me. And if death can't conquer me, can stress conquer me? If I'm overwhelmed with stress, what's my perspective on my trial? Should I fear? Should I stay? Should I leave God? No, because things are only going to get better. If I'm faced with a sickness or a diagnosis that makes me fear and makes me tremble, how should I respond? I should trust it, entrust it to God because even if it takes my life or even if it takes the life of a loved one, we have the promise of heaven. He says, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. You know, a lot of times we think the crown of life is a crown. I don't necessarily think that's what he's saying. We focus so much on the crown, we forget about the life. I don't, I don't know if Fellowship did this. We used to have Awanas. It was like our Wednesday night program. And we would say verses, and they would give us like jewels 
on a little crown we pinned to a dorky vest that we wore every Wednesday night. In fact, I was, I was doing research for this message and someone was selling their Awana vest on eBay. I'm like, who's going to buy your kid's Sparky vest? Come on. And it's not like Jesus is going to, you know, I, I, don't, I could be wrong. I don't think he's going to give people a crown just because they were persecuted. I think really the idea in this passage is this, that because you've, you've been faithful to me, because you have claimed me as your Lord, you don't have to worry about death. You don't worry, have to worry about suffering because you have the promise of eternal life. You don't have to fear. That is an empowering truth that we can march throughout life and nothing has to make us fear because we know that on the other side of death is not the end. It's only the beginning. Here's what I want us to do tonight, church. My guess is that there are some people here tonight who are facing some suffering that seems overwhelming. And maybe, like this church, it might be about to shake your faith. Can I encourage you tonight, if there's fear in your heart, to remember what the scriptures say, that God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And that maybe tonight at an altar or at your seat, you would audibly say to God, God, I'm entrusting this to you. I promise you, you will continue to struggle with fear until you give it over to God. And say, God, I trust you with this. I don't know what's going to happen I have no control over the situation, but God, I'm giving it over to you. I trust that whatever you want to do in this situation is best. I'm trusting you. And maybe there's some here tonight, I don't even know what everyone is going through. Maybe there's some here who have a burden, and you could, you could come to the altar, and just like the song we sang says, to pray about it, to take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray tonight. Father, I'm so thankful